Journey Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of What's Up. You've got Marie, you've got Connor, and we are talking with Madeline Howard of Coral Restoration Foundation about their huge, massive part in restoring nursing everything you can imagine in getting the corals rebuilt on uh, the local, regional, and even global scale. So uh, take a listen to our conversation with Madeline from Coral Restoration Foundation. My name is Madeline. Um, I work with Coral Restoration Foundation. We are the world's largest nonprofit marine conservation organization dedicated to restoring coral reefs to a healthy state. So our main core mission is to restore coral reefs, um, educate others on the importance of our oceans, and to use science to further coral research and for further coral reef monitoring techniques. Um, so kind of going more into the specific types of research that we focus on and facilitate. Um, we facilitate lots of different research collaborations with scientists um, around the world, focusing on all types of coral reef ecosystem health. And in-house, a major focus of our science program is coral restoration monitoring and methodology. And so your organization is based in Florida. And I know myself and a lot of people think a lot of the coral reefs are international based. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the the national coral reefs and and are they different from the international ones? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that you said that a lot of people don't think of coral reefs being in the United States because I actually majored in marine biology, have a degree <laughs> in marine biology, and did not know that we had coral reefs in the United States until I began my college degree. So it's definitely um, something that a lot of people just completely overlook that we have this really amazing, um, unique ecosystem right in our backyards. Um, we do have reefs throughout the United States. We have them in Hawaii, we have them in Puerto Rico, but Florida's coral reef is the only continental reef. Um, and it's actually the third largest barrier reef in the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, most people can guess the first largest barrier reef. Do you guys know which one it is? The great one. The great barrier reef. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so the great barrier reef is obviously the most famous. Um, the number two is actually the Mesoamerican, which is on the um, Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and then Florida is number three, which is very exciting. People really don't understand that like we have a really incredible like global phenomenon here in, in Florida. Um, the reef itself is 350 miles long. Um, so it goes all the way from around like the West Palm area of Florida down to the um, national park called the Dry Tortugas, which is past Key West. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a huge space, um, but it's all an, a linked ecosystem. Um, it definitely is in need of our help and our support. Um, in the last 40 years, we have seen a loss of about 97% of the dominant coral species on this reef. Um, and that was actually sort of what spurred the founding of, yeah, it's, it's shocking when you say like the 97% number, it's, yeah. it blows your mind, honestly. Wow. Um, so yeah, we're, we're down to almost, uh, or only about 2% cover even in some places. Um, but that is what spurred the, the founding of Coral Restoration Foundation was that really drastic and really shocking loss. Wow. So 
with the 350 miles, I believe that's the number that you said, is the area like blocked off or is it deep enough where when boats go over, they're not affecting anything or are they affecting things? Yeah, really good question. Um, so Florida has some really great um, policy and marine parks and sanctuaries in place that allow for a holistic use of Florida's coral reef. So essentially, there are lots of different de designations and regulations um, when you're anywhere along this reef tract. Um, so there's some places that you know, are called spa zones or sanctuary zones where you can't touch anything, you can't take anything, but you can snorkel or you can scuba dive and you can see everything. Um, and that's a really great way to allow humans to still kind of have this connection with the environment um, while protecting it as well. Um, so that that's a really big part of the conservation of the reef is these regulations. Hmm. Yeah, so, so when we look at, you know, reefs in Florida, um, you know, for example, or, you know, maybe even, you know, around the Yucatan Peninsula, um, are there any, like, are there any really large notable differences uh, between the ones that are, for example, in Florida or, you know, on the other side of the Gulf versus, for, you know, for example, the one we all know, the Great Barrier Reef? Um, I know that these, these, the reefs themselves are sources of just incredible biodiversity. Um, so I imagine there's some difference, but I guess looking at each one from just a plain reef perspective, are there any huge differences or... So the biggest difference that you'll likely see is going to be in the topography, so the physical structure, um, and the actual species that are living there. Obviously, when okay. um, you have similar ecosystems, you're going to have similar species, but they, if they've evolved across on two sides of the globe, they're completely um, unrelated. You know, they've not touched one another. Um, so we do see like barrier reefs, for example, are different from something like a patch reef or an inshore reef. Um, barrier reefs have typically a really um, high elevation of topography in comparison to something like a patch reef. So you get a lot of wave protection from barrier reefs. Um, patch reefs provide that as well, just in a bit of a different capacity. Um, so you do see some differences but um, if just kind of you're looking at a beautiful photo of a reef, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of, of difference. We all know, and it's widely discussed, that, that coral reefs are essential to the ecosystem. Can you tell us in deeper terms, like, what does that mean and, and how do they really affect the ecosystem? Yeah, so this is a really a really in-depth conversation. It's because, <laughs> because, you know, I think everyone kind of gets the overall idea. Like, I feel like a lot of people have heard the stat, which is very important that, you know, 25% of marine life depends on a coral reef for their existence um, at some point in their lifetime. So like 25% of the things that live in the ocean depend on a coral reef. That is really, really significant, but sometimes that doesn't quite resonate with someone who maybe has never even seen the ocean. Um, so I really, I really like to focus and talk about like the ways that humans are impacted by coral reefs. Um, and that's not just people um, along the coastlines, although it is a lot of people along the coastlines, um, but even people that, you know, could be in Indiana, right? Um, so just kind of some of the, the shocking stats or the impactful stats of people that are directly affected by coral reefs. There's over 500 million people that rely directly on coral reefs for food, for protection, and for livelihoods, and that's around the world. Um, so if we were to completely lose coral reefs, over 500 million people would have a completely upended, upturned life. Wow. Um, yeah. 
And then on top of that, coral reefs themselves are estimated to add $9.9 trillion to our global economy. So again, if we were to lose coral reefs, we wouldn't just be losing something that is an invaluable um, part of our global ecosystem, but also something that is literally the, um, the home for hundreds of millions of people. And it's a global economy. We would be losing in a huge part of our global economy. Um, and so that's really, I like to bring that in to release, uh, I guess, kind of reach across the aisle, like get people that maybe, you know, don't really care too much about ocean creatures, but can see how we really can be personally impacted if we just completely lose this ecosystem. And so can you tell us a little bit, you mentioned the statistic, sorry, I'm taking over questions here. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the statistic of 97% um, of you have to reiterate that statistic. I, I know it was 98% and that was no. like jaw dropping, um, but there obviously is a crisis going on. It's clear just in that one statistic, I'm sure there's there's thousands more. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the reef crisis and, and what coral restoration is doing to combat? Yes, it? definitely. So, Globally, we're, we're seeing a huge decline in, in coral reef health globally. Um, that's a direct result of climate change, um, as well as the um, um, sort of aftershocks, I guess, of, you know, things that are affected by climate change as well. Um, but here on Florida's coral reef, um, we saw that 97% loss of our stony coral cover. So essentially we had all of this stony coral, all of this pretty beautiful, healthy coral, and over 40 years, we lost 97% of it. Um, when you kind of look at the different factors that uh, led to that, we tend in the coral world to break it up into like local, regional and global stressors. Um, so obviously I mentioned global climate change. Um, local and regional stressors are things that a lot of management agencies um, are able to deal with on a bit more of a um, fast timeline. Um, I guess is the right way to describe it. Like they're able to address it very quickly. So right. things like a boat grounding or anchor damage, mm -hmm. that would be considered a local stressor, right? If somebody throws an anchor onto the reef, it knocks a coral off of the reef, um, which will kill it, you know, it crushes the coral. Um, that's local damage. And you can start to mitigate that by placing different regulations or um, here in the Florida Keys Marine Sanctuary, they have these things called mooring buoys, um, which are permanent anchors. So instead of throwing your own boat anchor in, you go over to the mooring buoy and you just tie yourself on. So there's, you don't have to put an anchor in at all. So completely gets rid of that local stressor. Wow. Um, so mitigating some of those smaller stressors really, really helps when you're talking about kind of large scale management. Mm -hmm. Now, what Coral Restoration Foundation is focusing on is the restoration of these areas. So literally returning corals that have been lost to the wild. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware, um, let me know if you are, but corals are actually an animal. Did you yeah, I was thinking they were I... like trees. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was actually going to ask you that. I'm like, okay, are they like half fauna, half, I mean, like, are, are they between the plant animal world or yeah. like, what yeah, exactly so, the centaur of <laughs> it, honestly, it might even be, what's the three thing? Because we sometimes joke that it's, um, it's both plant, animal and mineral. 
It's an okay. herbivore, I guess. Technically, technically, it is an animal. It would be classified as an animal. But inside of the tissue of the coral, so like inside of their skin, they have a plant, an algae, that um, they have a symbiotic relationship. They have a mutual relationship with. And that algae reacts with the sun, just like all other plants do. It creates food from the sun. And then the coral gets that food from the algae. It gets the energy from the algae living in its skin. Hmm. Um, and without that algae, the coral actually can't survive. So this getting into um, something completely unrelated, but when you see a coral bleached, that actually means that the algae that was within its skin has been expelled from the coral animal for some reason, usually a stressor. Um, and the coral is the tissue of the coral. The animal is still actually living. Um, and if the stressor goes away, the coral could still survive. The algae could come back in and the coral could still survive. Um, but without that relationship, um, the corals can't survive. So they're very, very closely linked, this algae and the, the coral, the animal. Um, and then the mineral part comes in because stony corals, um, they literally create stone, they create limestone. So just kind of like we grow fingernails or we grow hair um, or we grow our bones, they grow a limestone skeleton. And that limestone skeleton is what creates the structure of the reef that we were kind of talking about earlier, how barrier reefs have these like mountainous structures. Those are all created by these living stony corals. Um, so that's also kind of goes into like how how corals are really important for our ocean ecosystems because they're yeah. engineers of the ecosystem. They um, provide habitat. Um, they provide food sources. They're really, really incredible. But so, I think I got yeah. a little off track there. <laughs> no. no, no, not at all. So um, when we, that, that actually leads me to another question. So um, when we look at, you know, you, since you mentioned, you know, they, they essentially produce these minerals, limestone that make up, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, like, it's basically the foundation of the coral reef you're saying? Yes. So, exactly. okay. So when we, I guess when we look at that, when we look at the overall, like if we were to, you know, cut up, you know, take a, a section of a, um, you know, of a coral reef, what, what are the kind of layers? What are the sections that, you know, from top to bottom that build out a coral reef? So it's going to be different species of reef building corals. So okay. there's, or stony corals, um, they're kind of referred to as a lot of things. And those stony corals are the ones that Coral Restoration Foundation actually focuses on returning to the wild because those were the dominant species that we've seen the decline in. Um, so if you were to take that cross section, you would see types of branching corals like staghorn and elkhorn. Um, you would see bouldering corals, which come in many shapes and sizes and names. Um, a, a really famous one is brain coral. So brain coral yeah. is like a big boulder. Um, and they're all creating these limestone skeletons where their, their outer tissue is just that very, very top layer and they keep getting larger and larger and larger over millions and millions of years building up these structures. Wow. That's, yeah, that's incredible. So when you, when you go in and you're looking to restore these, um, you know, and essentially bringing these coral reefs back to the wild, um, what does that process look like? I mean, do you just, uh, you know, do you bring the algae back to it? Or, I mean, I guess it ultimately depends on what the issue with the coral is, but how do you guys normally tackle that problem? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So it's essentially, um, it's sometimes referred to as coral farming, although I like to stay away from the farming word because it is an animal and I want people to, you know, make sure they get that it's an animal and not, uh, not a crop. Um, but essentially what we do is Coral Restoration Foundation um, has developed 
open ocean coral nurseries. And we have, um, actually, I got to backtrack a little bit because you need a bit more coral biology to kind of understand <laughs> the process. So corals can reproduce asexually. They can clone themselves. So if you were to break a coral in half, you now have two new corals that are going to keep growing larger and larger. And then you can break those two in half and you've now got four. So you can multiply them in this way. That's a natural process that happens in the wild. Um, Say a storm comes along like a hurricane and there's really heavy waves. Uh, Lots of those branches of the corals are going to break off and they actually seed the rest of the reef. So they start to grow more and more. Okay. Um, The Coral Restoration Foundation has taken that process into our open ocean nurseries and we've been able to hone it and accelerate it. So we developed what's called the coral tree, um, which is now actually used kind of globally for coral restoration efforts. Um, And you hang these little fragments of corals on fishing line, monofilament line, um, from these trees. And they're able to grow about four to six times faster than they would if you just placed them kind of on a flat surface Mm. um, because they're getting, you know, water flow and nutrients and sunlight from all directions and they're able to grow in all directions. So from about the size of like maybe a finger um, is where they start. And after about six to nine months, they'll be about the size of a basketball. And that is great because it allows us to harvest and gather lots and lots of fragments that are then transported to restoration sites. Um, So literally reef sites along Florida's coral reef. And from there, we start the process of outplanting. And that's a very common term used in the the coral science and restoration world is coral outplanting. And the way that Coral Restoration Found does it foundation does it is we use a two-part epoxy. So we take a a piece of a coral fragment, we take that two-part marine epoxy, we clear out a nice space. So we get rid of any algae or, you know, gross stuff that's on top of the reef. So we have a nice surface of limestone, put the epoxy down, squish that coral into it. It almost feels like, you know, you're squishing it into (laughs) Play-Doh. And then the corals are, the corals are secured. We do our weight, we do what is called a wave test. So we literally blow water across it with our hands to make sure that any, you know, direct action against the coral, it's gonna, it's gonna stay in place. Um, and we do that for about, um, at least 500 corals per boat trip. <laughs> so oh, wow. Yeah, wow. it's definitely, it's, um, we, we operate on a really massive scale. Um, that is, it's one of the major distinguishing features of Coral Restoration Foundation is that we are really trying to create these, um, ecological, like refuges of biodiversity. So get as many corals back onto the reef as possible, create a critical mass that allows us to reach sort of a tipping point where reefs can stabilize and begin to begin to stabilize themselves and have natural recovery processes take over. Um, so, so, uh, that actually leads me to a lot more questions I have. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> I thought of like 14 more questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the first, so the, the way I can kind of conceptualize this is, you know, if, if I'm just imagining, for example, just a large flat surface that spans, you know, dozens or hundreds of miles, um, and you, and it's empty and it's barren of, you know, where cor- uh, coral should be, um, you, you essentially, you know, up to, you know, whenever you are doing, uh, boat trips, you will go and you'll kind of, um, seed 
you know, this reef and, you know, kind of space these different, uh, and I, I know we're trying to stay away from crop terms here, but we're, you know, you it's kind of see it out. We're from the Midwest, so yeah. it shows. <laughs> everywhere I look, everywhere I look, there's just corn. So, um, <laughs> um, but uh, so you kind of, you kind of seed the surface and then eventually I assume you guys monitor it, you know, for the, you know, oncoming years, it, it just naturally rebuilds itself over the surface, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So yes, we, and seeding is a perfectly acceptable term to use. Okay, um, okay. That's, <laughs> that is really what's happening is that we are returning and restoring um, genetically diverse um, species of corals to selected sites that are, you know, they're selected across a number of criteria with lots and lots of different working groups um, to create these healthy zones. And then from there, the, you know, the eventual hope is that we start to see things like coral spawning. Um, which is reproduction. So I mentioned that corals can reproduce asexually. You break them in half, there's two. They also reproduce the, the, uh, the human way, I guess, uh, when you <laughs> parents, you know? So they'll release their eggs into the water um, and have a mixture of genes. And we have actually seen that with the corals that we have returned to the wild. So that's a really, really exciting um, thing to see, um, a really um, successful thing to see because it takes a lot of energy to create eggs. It takes a lot of energy to reproduce. And so when you see that in the wild, um, it's a really good indicator that the corals are healthy and it means that there's the potential for new life as well. I'm thinking of these like animals and, and sometimes so in um, animal sanctuaries and things, uh, an animal will reproduce and then sometimes their offspring has to be moved to a more nurturing parent. Um, has there ever been times where the coral that you guys have, have seeded just don't get along with the limestone, um, the structure that you guys are putting them on? Like, do you have to find uh, appropriate, I don't know, homes, I guess, for them? It's not necessarily about, um, about finding appropriate homes, more so about um, finding areas where we can allow like success to essentially be spread out across the entire reef. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about restoration, you are obviously returning the corals to the wild. So they're going to have to deal with um, a lot of the stressors that are currently out there. Um, and that is why we at, at Coral Restoration Foundation, we focus on returning genetically diverse populations because genetic diversity is shown to create a resilient population, right? Say, you know, one type of coral may be able to withstand a big disease event or um, another type may be able to fare better against um, increasing ocean surface temperatures. Um, and then sometimes, you know, they all get wiped out by one of those anchors dropping on top of them. And so there are these factors that they have to deal with, um, but the higher numbers that we are able to restore and the um, genetic diversity that you're able to conserve is going to give them a better shot of survival. And then, so, and I know we're, we're staying away from, they are animals. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, these two just can't get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. It's a whole, it's a, it's a struggle within the, the community. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of, you know, their internal structure that you went through is the algae. Um, I was, I listened to a podcast many years ago and it talked about how um, in the forest, there will be two um, 
elder trees and say the tree in the middle has um, some sort of uh, degradation to whatever factor. It could be not getting enough sunlight. It's not, you know, pests or something like that. So the two other, the trees next to it will almost sense the alert of the young tree and then it'll feed in nutrients into the, the uh, young tree. Do coral do this with each other? Do they, do they interact and talk to each other to help each other out? That's a really great question. To be perfectly honest, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, I will say in, in sort of relationship to that kind of like the way that, that coral outplants, the ones that we get out there interact, um, if they're, if they're a different species, if they're not, you know, uh, the same coral, then they will compete. So we do outplant all of the fragments within a similar genotype. So we'll do like 50 fragments of one singular genotype with the goal that as they grow, because they're the same genotype, they'll fuse together. Okay. Because I haven't mentioned this part, but one of the major functions of the corals that we're restoring is this habitat creation. Um, so as they fuse together, they're creating these branching thickets that create lots and lots of little spaces for tons of different species to, to live, to hide, to feed. Um, and so that is one way that corals do interact is if they're the same species or the same genotype really, they'll fuse together. Um, and if they are competitors, they can actually fight each other um, for space. So on a healthy coral reef where you have lots of different genetic diversity, you are gonna see a little bit of that competition. Um, but when you are working to restore an area, you do need to be conscious of it and um, make sure that you've got you know, your similar genotype in one cluster. Mm -hmm. um, so actually I wanna take it back when we were talking about um, you know, essentially seeding a large area and you know, planting corals. Um, so, uh, like you mentioned, ultimately the, the goal when you do this is to have those corals, you know, reproduce on them on their own and, and, you know, spread out and create that ecosystem. Um, are there a certain set of like conditions or, you know, a subset of conditions really, um, and these might be, you know, the, you know, environmental factors are around it, but are there conditions that need to be met ultimately before the coral can reproduce on its own? There, there definitely isn't a, a set list. Um, the, the short answer is they need to have um, their basic needs met, okay. right? They need to, um, to be healthy enough to expend a lot of energy doing something that, um, that is risky. You know, re reproduction can be risky in the wild. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about some of the hazards. We've touched on a few of them um, as far as like anchor dropping and, uh, you know, big waves that may come through from a storm. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, beyond human hazards, are there fellow ocean species that are causing issues to coral reefs? Yeah, absolutely. This is another topic that I like to um, kind of dive into because I have to say like corals have, the coral reefs and coral reef ecosystems have been around for hundreds of millions of years. So any kind of um, natural stressors are 
typically seen in balance. And so what we are seeing now is an imbalanced ecosystem exacerbated by human stressors, human caused stressors. Yeah. Any of these natural, um, natural stressors are, are exacerbated by that. They're made a lot worse, um, but there are definitely natural stressors. There's things like hurricanes, Those, that is a natural disaster, um, but we're seeing them happen more frequently. We're seeing them become more intense. Um, and you know, one hurricane in 10, 20 years, a reef, a healthy reef is able to bounce back from that. But two or three very strong hurricanes within a short span of time on an already degraded reef ecosystem, that is really, really detrimental to a reef. Um, another example are coralivores, so like animals that eat corals. Um, in a balanced and healthy ecosystem, that's just, you know, the, the food web. There are things that eat other animals and, and it balances each other out. It's um, how, the, how our ecosystems work. Um, but again, if you have um, an ecosystem that's lost 97% of corals of this food source and you still have the coralivores, any bit of that coralivore eating that coral is, especially for a coral nerd like me, is really heartbreaking because you're just right. like, please don't eat my corals. <laughs> um, one, actually, this is, people are often shocked by this one. One of the worst is a snail. There's a snail that just loves eating the staghorn corals. Um, and we actually do have uh, permits to remove them from our outplants, um, just to get them, get them away from there. So yeah. they have to find something else. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think you went into it a little bit, but you know, what about the human hazards or what are the things that humans are doing? And you mentioned, you know, even miles away in Indiana, people could be doing something that's affecting the corals. So you know, from the human side, what is the most adverse effects that are happening? So the biggest threat to corals globally is anthropogenic climate change. Um, so the increase in carbon emissions causing the warming sea surface temperatures, um, causing an increase in ocean acidification, um, that's actually a big one as well. So not only are, are, are we seeing increases in sea surface temperatures, which, um, I feel like I'm giving so many like coral bio lessons. <laughs> I don't want to get too, too science-y, but um, basically corals have a Goldilocks zone, right? They can't live in water too cold or too hot. So as we see these more increasing temperatures, that's what when we start to see the bleaching response um, more frequently and more drastically. But another really negative impact is ocean acidification. And the, the most simplified version of what happens there is that when you combine excess carbon dioxide with ocean water, you create a chemical reaction that creates carbonic acid. And limestone, which if you remember is um, the skeleton of corals, what corals create as their skeleton, is a basic substance. So when you combine an acid in a base, the acid actually dissolves that base. So in really, really extreme circumstances, you would see the literal dissolving of coral skeletons. Um, but what we often really more so see is um, like the inability to begin creating their skeleton. And so it becomes much harder for new corals to survive, um, new babies to be born and things like that. Um, so ocean acidification and climate change um, are two of the biggest global stressors. 
Um, and from there, kind of like I was talking about earlier, we really break things down into more regional and local things. Um, so there are definitely, you know, small steps that people can take um, to decrease their, you know, their own personal carbon emissions. Um, and I just think that, um, you know, globally as a community, it's really important for us to, if we want to, you know, help save these ecosystems to focus on reducing global carbon emissions. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you know, really looking at, you know, when, when, before we jumped on this call, um, you know, I'm sure Mar uh, Marie did this as well, but we did, I did a deep dive of your website. Um, I really wanted to get a good understanding of, you know, how you conduct your research and the different areas that you're investing in and everything. Um, one of the techniques that I saw you guys really highlighted on there was a technique called photo mosaics. Um, can you give us a little better, you know, a bit more of an insight on, on what that technique is, how, you know, how the research is conducted around that? Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about photo mosaics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I, you know, I know the viewer or the listeners can't see, but I have a photo mosaic pictured behind me. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. I thought that was and granite. It me, looks like a too. granite, like it does, slab. it does, but now it's even cooler. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially what a photo mosaic is physically is a compilation or a mosaic. So a compilation of hundreds or even thousands of photos of an entire reef ecosystem um, that are stitched together in a computer software system. And so then you get one huge photo, one singular photo. Um, I often hear it sort of compared to, if you've ever seen that really famous Bob Marley poster that's like made of a bunch of, a bunch of little pictures of Bob Marley and it makes one big picture of Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the idea is that we have all of these really, really small pictures um, of a singular part of the reef and we stitch them all together to create the entire reef. Oh, wow. Now, yeah. So it's, first of all, it's beautiful. It creates a really, really beautiful and kind of impactful image, um, which I really love because it, you know, lets us share more with the world. But from the science and research side, it is much more effective and efficient for our monitoring. Um, so you can't basically, I mean, you could, but uh, you can't have coral restoration without, um, progressing and without monitoring what is happening. You know, if we're just throwing corals out there without um, understanding how they are faring, then we're not gonna make much progress. And so right. we do monitor all of the corals that we return to the reef. Um, and so far, Coral Restoration Foundation has returned since 2007, 170,000 corals to the reef. Wow. wow. So, so that's amazing, but it's also a really daunting number when it comes to monitoring um, because before our photo mosaic program, we did pen and paint, pen and pen, pen and paper, excuse me, before our photo mosaic uh, monitoring program, we used pen and paper monitoring, which means we sent individual divers into the water to find specific corals um, and write down how they were faring. Now that limited how many corals we were able to monitor and um, it limited how, or it really took a toll on how much time and money we were spending to, to monitor. So photo mosaics has stepped up our game on all levels in that. Um, now we see entire reef ecosystems, we're able to monitor them on land. So all of the stats that we were getting in the water, things like if there is fusion, um, how much it's grown over time, the survivorship of a certain area, um, and really just like overall ecosystem health, we can get every single one of those stats from the comfort of a lab.
laboratory or of our headquarters, you know, looking at a computer screen and looking at this image. Um, So it's really, yeah, it's really been a wonderful development for us. Um, This is actually the first year that we have implemented it 100% across the board as our um, monitoring method. Um, And it's been really successful so far. That's incredible. All I can imagine is like a flip book. Like you're just like going through a flip book and you're like, okay, <laughs> everything looks good. <laughs> um, but that's it's incre- a bit I mean, like that. Yeah. <laughs> just the amount of resources that, you know, you guys can, can monitor on such an efficient level at this point. There's like, you know, I would imagine the 170,000 is just going to grow exponentially based on not putting your resources into other areas now. So that's phenomenal. Absolutely, for sure. One other thing I really like about the photo mosaics is it sounds very, very uh, complicated and sometimes expensive, but it's actually really cost-effective too um, because the actual physical process of getting one is we have a PVC rig, which is, so it's like one PVC pole. And then at the end of that pole are two little GoPro cameras. And then you swim across the top of the reef and the GoPro cameras are taking pictures the whole time. Um, And that's it. That's how you get the photo mosaic. And then the computer does the hard work of, you know, stitching them all together. Um, And the software isn't something that's um, too unattainable either. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing how you go about that process. I was like, is it drones? Is it, you know, yeah, (laughs) it is. So that is still manpower. Yeah. You're still um, got, have a diver in the water swimming with the, the photo mosaic uh, GoPros. Cool, very cool. So, um, you know, when when you get, when we ultimately or when you guys create the the result of that photo mosaic and the computer stitches it all together, uh, you know, maybe we can include like what a photo of this looks like in the show notes. But I'm looking at your background uh, because Maria and I both thought it was you know that uh, that granite. <laughs> um, so when you look at it, um, do you uh, like what are things you look for in the in the images? Is it just like you know, for example, in the background, it looks like there's some white areas. So is that like, you know, uh, existing bleaching or, you know, what types of things do you look for? Yeah. So the other really great part of the photo mosaics is that because it's made of all of these thousands of photos, you're able to zoom in and out. So you have this one huge, large image, but it's interactive. So you can literally zoom in onto a single uh, you know, hand-sized coral fragment, and then zoom all the way out to see the big picture. So when we're doing the monitoring, um, we're looking for a lot of different criteria. Um, things like we'll be able to measure over time. We do take photo mosaics the day they're outplanted at one month and then at one year um, with the potential to possibly continue monitoring for 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and so things like uh, if there is the presence of disease, if there is the presence of bleaching, we'll be able to see that. Um, if there's been fusion of multiple coral fragments, if there's been fusion and growth. Um, so all of those different parameters we're looking at gathering the data on. Um, we do use scale bars within the, within the mosaic to allow us to um, have accurate like measurements. Um, and yeah, collecting all of it. And then our science team gets to analyze all that stuff. <laughs> Very cool. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your website mentions volunteers and working alongside with volunteers. So how can people get involved and volunteer with the Coral Restoration Foundation? Yeah, for sure. So I haven't mentioned, but um, CRF has three main pillars of um, our mission. And so restoration and science we've talked a lot about, but education is also a really huge part of our mission because we do know that 
in order to save coral reefs, it's going to take action on multiple levels and it's going to be a community effort. And so we really work to engage and empower the people within our community um, and not just within our local community, but globally. So there's tons and tons of different ways to get involved. Um, we do have a really great network of volunteers um, in order to do volunteering. It's a bit of more of a committed process. So if people are more interested in just kind of getting a taste of what we do, we also offer educational day long dive programs um, where if you're a scuba diver you learn with us in the morning we do a bit of a hands-on practice session and then we actually take you into our open ocean coral nurseries um, and if the weather permits and if it's safe um, you're able to return corals to the wild with us oh, wow. Um, wow. if you're just a snorkeler you're still able to come and see the entire process which I always still encourage because um, I've mentioned our coral nurseries a few times we have the largest coral nursery in the world um, it covers over an acre and a half of ocean floor and so it's just a once in a lifetime experience to be able to see it um, so even if you're not a scuba certified snorkelers are able to see um, the work that we do that's incredible wow and so we're we're almost almost to time and I'm there's like so much more I'm sure we could talk about <laughs> so we, we would love to have you back on because just the biology alone is like enough to take up probably three four hours and you've been spending <laughs> gosh knows how many years on this stuff um but where can people connect with you and or um CRF uh to get in touch yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm actually glad that you said, you know, there's just so much to talk about because that, I mean, I love talking about these yeah. kinds of things. And um, yes. if people are interested, we share so, so much of our work um, and we really try to create um, really engaging and visual, um, visually satisfying um, content. And so we are really active across all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, um, most every handle is going to be at Coral Restoration Foundation, except for our Twitter is at Coral CRF. And um, of course, our website is a wonderful, wonderful resource. We have lots and lots of information about basic coral anatomy and biology. And then we go really into detail about the work that we're doing. Um, it is coralrestoration.org. Um, so if the, if you need just kind of a basic get to know everything, coralrestoration.org is the first stop for sure. Perfect. We will link Great. everything down below. Um, and we can't thank you enough for spending time with us again. We're going to have to have you on again to, to chat more, <laughs> but for everything you guys are doing at CRF, we can't thank you enough. So yeah, thank you. Thank you again for coming on and uh, joining, joining us. Thank you so much for having us. I absolutely loved it.